one of our core values is to have a passion for the mission of God, both locally and globally. And about a month ago, we did a, a sermon on what it means to have a passion for the mission locally. Uh, today, we're going to talk about what it means to have a passion for the mission globally. And so John is one of our world partners. Uh, if you're not familiar with that lingo, that means he's one of our missionaries serving overseas in the Ukraine. And uh, also, if you're new with us, you may want to point out, too, that our, our giving, when you give, to over 20% of our, our giving goes towards uh, serving the Lord overseas and, and locally. And if you want to know more about those that are serving uh, in various capacities, we have a hall of missions downstairs. If you head down uh, towards our fellowship hall, you can check out and see people's bios and learn more about what they're doing. Uh, but John's going to give us a message today about having a passion for that mission globally. And so, John, before you uh, preach, can I pray for you? All right, so would you please pray with me, and then John will bring us the word. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for those that have answered the call to go. Uh, Father, for those of us that are, that are here, Lord, you call us to serve in the community that we live in, Lord, but there's many that have answered the call to, to sacrifice and to give their lives for the mission uh, overseas, Lord. And so we thank you so much for people like John and others like him. Uh, pray that you would use his words this morning to stir us up as he exposes your word and teaches us what it means to be sent out to expand uh, the tent of your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts and that we would leave today changed and transformed uh, through your word, the preaching of your word, Lord. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. Um, <clears throat> it's great to be back here. Um, let's see. I'd like to share with you a little bit about who I am for those who don't know me. Um, My name is John White. Uh, My wife, uh, Stella, uh, and son, six-year-old son, Eddie, are in that picture. I don't know how well you can see it. That's Independence Square in Kiev, Ukraine, where we serve. Um, And uh, we've been missionaries in Ukraine uh, since, well, I I left, I was sent out by Millington Baptist in the year 2000, so now almost 20 years. Uh, I met my wife, Stella, in Ukraine, uh, in eastern Ukraine, where we served in Donetsk until 2014, uh, teaching at a school there. Unfortunately, as you may have heard, uh, a war uh, between Russia and Ukraine started in 2014, and it's actually still going on. It's still kind of at a simmer stage where they shoot at each other a little bit uh, each day. Um, And so we were forced to leave there, and we were invited to a school in Kiev, the capital, uh, Ukraine, and we've been there since 2014. Um, I'm a teacher of missions. My wife uh, teaches English, and well, Eddie usually entertains us. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, I uh, have some allergies. I'll, I'll try to not cough too much. Uh, today, I'd like to share with you uh, a, a message that I'm calling "A Miracle and a Hope: uh, God, God's Call to Global Mission." And um, before we, or as we're starting, I'd like you to imagine a time long ago, a time in the Old Testament, um, a time when. Israel, God's people, were in exile. Uh, the Babylonians, uh, the world power at that time, had conquered Israel and taken most of the people off from their homelands. Many were forced to live in Babylon and other parts of their empire. Uh, and it was a horrible time. Uh, many people had seen many die. Uh, of course, most were forced to lose their home, something that now we can sympathize a little bit more with, uh, having uh, lost our home in Donetsk. Um, and in, in Russian, there's a saying. It says, posledny. It means hope is the last to die. And I think at this time, it's pretty appropriate that Israel felt that all they had left was hope. And fortunately for them, they were sent the prophet Isaiah. 
And Isaiah came and shared a message of hope that, that now everything is bad, but something better is coming. A Messiah is coming. A Messiah will come and save you. And that message was amazing. And I'd like to read with you some verses uh, from Isaiah. Um, these are verses uh, maybe famous. You might uh, sing some of them at Christmas time. Um, you might uh, be familiar with them. Um, I'm going to read you part of uh, Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to focus on chapter 54, so I'm, I, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but <clears throat> just listen. Uh, maybe, maybe these are familiar to you already. I'm talking about this promised Messiah that Israel was waiting for. Who has believed what he heard, has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And let me read just a little further down in the passage of chapter 53 from verse 10. <clears throat> Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. <coughs> Excuse me. Now this is a prophecy of a miracle, that God was going to send his own son, a Messiah, to save them. And who is he going to suffer and die for? For us, for sinners, for many people who had rejected him. That was an amazing hope, an amazing idea that the Israelites, <laughs> I'm sure, were just waiting for day after day. Now, this passage means a lot to me as well. I'm from a non-Christian family. I'm originally from the Chicago area. <clears throat> and a friend at the end of high school led me to Christ. And I was a very new believer. I was just visiting church for the first time. And I remember somebody, uh, maybe it was the pastor, maybe it was an introduction, I don't remember, but they were reading this passage. And I'd like to read a, few, a couple of the verses that I skipped. And they made a huge impact on me and my understanding, my, my feeling for what Christ had gone through for me. And maybe it would encourage you as well. In verse 7, talking about Christ, the Messiah, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land he was of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now that image of a sheep really struck me. That like a sheep who would choose not to open his mouth, the God of the universe who could call angels down to protect him, he decided to be silent for me. 
to take all of that that happened. And that really struck me as, as a new believer to understand how much God loved me, how much he wanted a relationship with me, and, and later as I would learn how much he wanted to use me uh, in his plans. And so God performed a miracle in me and gave me a new hope. Um, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, Isaiah 53 is a very popular uh, chapter to read and, and make songs from. But I'd like to share with you from Isaiah chapter 54, because this is the next step in the story that God wasn't satisfied just in saving Israel. He wanted to save more. So I'd like to turn now to Isaiah chapter 54, where you're going to read just three verses and focus on three verses today. Um, So let me go ahead and read. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, three verses and I'd like to share with you three points. The first point is that God wants to do a miracle in us and a hope for more miracles. Um, To understand the amazingness of this miracle, we have to understand a little bit about the concept of barrenness, because as as I just read, he's talking about a barren woman, a woman who has not been able to bear children, and for her, uh, in the ancient world, the time that this was written, barrenness was considered a curse. It was a judgment from God. And so women that unfortunately couldn't bear children, for them it was incredibly difficult, um, and, uh, of course, when Israelites would read this story, they'd think back to the most famous barren, barren person in their history. It was, it was Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, that she, for most of her life, bore no children. She had already gone past the age of childbearing. She was old, and, and she could look at Hagar, um, who had a child, and feel jealous, feel frustrated, feel abandoned. But God then promised her a child, and that was an amazing thing. Right? But she had to go through that period of barrenness to understand the miracle of God providing a child that God provided, not just for her, but, but for the nation of Israel. That child would be the father of Israel. <laughs> and we have Israel today because God did that miracle. I like the words of uh, one uh, particular Old Testament professor. Uh, his name is John Oswald. He shared it in referring to this verse. He said, Just as God could make a barren Sarah more fruitful than a fertile Hagar, so he can take those who are dead in trespasses and sins and use them to bring abundant blessings to the entire world. As West, yes, amen. As Westerman comments, it is cruel to ask a barren woman to sing unless you are able to offer her the only thing that will make her happy. And that is the very thing God offers his people. Humanly speaking, they are finished. But in the power of God, they will influence the world long after mighty Babylon is a pile of sand. The world knows Israel a little bit better than Babylon, right? I'd like to give you another image of barrenness. Um, This is a a different uh, problem, a physical one. Uh, If any of you like geography, uh, I've always liked geography, but I'm a missionary, so I guess that's normal, right? Um, There is a sea in in Kazakhstan, this is part of the former Soviet Union, called the Aral Sea. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it. Uh, It's on maps. Uh, At one time, it was one of the four largest lakes in the world, uh, about over 26 thousand square miles. But in reality, that doesn't exist anymore. 
Uh, can you see the next part? It has gone from that on the left to that on the right. That's, it's no longer there, but it's still on our maps. <laughs> what happened? Well, in Soviet times, uh, to irrigate the land, and this land, unfortunately, was pretty non-fertile, it was desert land, they, they dried the lake dry. Um, There's no water going in, and so the Aral Sea dried up. And you know, I think here, it, uh, Isaiah is also talking about something spiritual. And I think of this for us, because all of us are dealing with some amount of spiritual barrenness, right? We deal with problems every day uh, and don't have enough water, so to speak, in us. We're dealing with the demands of work, school, family, sickness, tragedy. You know, for a bottle of water to be healthy, it needs water to always be flowing in, sources of fresh water. And, you know, for us, we need that too. But sometimes I think all of us try to provide our own water. You know, I mean, I'm the sort of person, I've been pretty successful in my life. If I just work a little bit harder, you know, I'll get what I need. If I, if I just do that or make that right decision, everything will work out. But what we really need, each of us, is living water. Water that is supplied by Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because we can't do it all on our own. Um, of course, Jesus spoke about living water. I, I show an image here of meeting the woman at the well in the New Testament, the Samaritan woman. A woman who came just to get water for her physical thirst, but Jesus offered her living water for her soul. And that's what each of us need to supply our needs. We need a relationship with him that can only happen by everyday connection, by that supply of water each day so we don't become like the Aral Sea. That living water is a miracle. And, and God wants to perform that miracle in each one of us and wants that miracle to spread to others. He wants there to be a hope for that miracle to go on further. Now, I'm a teacher of missions, and, and one area that I really love to teach is the history of missions. So I hope you don't mind. Maybe history lessons are sometimes boring, I know. Um, but I want to share with you a couple of stories that, that might, uh, well, at least to me, they've been very uh, encouraging uh, inspiring. Uh, the first I'd like to share is by the first missionary from the United States. His name was Adoniram Judson. Uh, just a little bit after the year 1800, uh, he left uh, for the country of Burma. Uh, today it's known as Myanmar. And he uh, started doing missionary work there. But Burma is a very difficult place to be a missionary because uh, then, and, and now it's still true to some extent, uh, it's a Buddhist nation. The people don't really believe in God. They have no idea that, of a God who created the world. Um, they, they don't understand that. Their language is very hard. Uh, Judson realized uh, that to have an impact here, we need to translate the scriptures because, because many languages, many uh, cultures do not have the Bible in their language. And so he started working on that right away. And his mission was filled with tragedy and, and, and problems. Uh, he was, uh, during a war, he was imprisoned every night. He was held in shackles, his feet up and hanging down all night. Uh, his wife helped him survive that, and then his wife died he lost two children at very, very young ages, um, after, the second one after his wife died. Uh, many other missionaries died as well from disease and, and, and different threats to their lives. It was a very hard time. They saw very little fruit among the Burmese. But there was another tribe, a minority group, that lived up in the mountains. They were called the Karen. And one day, Judson met a gentleman who was Karen. His name was Kotap Bu, at least I think that's how you say it. Um, and he was a murderer. He had murdered, uh, by his own account, over 30 people. But he was interested in this Bible that Judson was working on. So he started, started reading some of it, and he gave his life to Christ. His life completely changed. 
And this man wanted to go back to his people, the Canaan people, and tell them about this amazing news. Now, the Canaan, they were really looked down upon by the Burmese. They thought, you know, they, they're not as civilized as we are. They live up in the mountains. And, and, you know, Judson and the other missionaries who worked there, they didn't really know much about the Canaan. But here's this guy who wants to, to bring his testimony, an amazing testimony of, of a life change. So, so some of these missionaries went up to, to go speak to the, the Canaan. Now, the Canaan, interestingly enough, thought really badly about themselves. They thought that God had cursed them. They had a legend that God, and they actually believed in a creator God, uh, unlike most of the Burmese people. Uh, They believed that long ago, their people had been given a book, a sacred book from God, but their ancestors had lost it. And because of that, they were cursed. But there was a prophecy that someday, some white people would come with a sacred book, and then they would be blessed again by God. So when Kota Biu, the former murderer, came with a few white American missionaries, <laughs> the people all repented. Actually, it's a little, it's a drawing, because back then you didn't have uh, photographs of, of a missionary who's actually on his deathbed. They brought him down to the riverside so he could see the people being baptized, giving their lives to Christ. And the Karen people didn't stop there. They became missionaries to pretty much all the other people in Burma. And so God amazingly took their barrenness and used them for his plans. And you know, if God can change the Quran, can't he change us? Can't he use us? God wants to give us the supply of living water so that then we gave it, we will give it to others. Let's look at the second verse a little more closely. God doesn't just want to do mission in us, or a miracle in us, I'm sorry. He wants to do a miracle through us. Uh, verse uh, 2 says, uh, I'll just read it for you again. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now, in the Middle East, people at this time predominantly lived in tents. And women were responsible for erecting the tents, for putting them up. And in the context of this story, this is quite uh, something that God is asking this barren woman to do. Imagine the barren woman who has no children is being told, you need a bigger tent because you're going to have so many children. So as an element of faith, that you've got to stretch out. You've got to reach out to more because more people are coming. And not only that, I think to the nation of Israel who could still remember um, the time in exile, or not in exile, I'm sorry, in the desert, 40 years they were in the desert living in tents, right? Could remember how God had provided for them then. So at this time when they're in, Israel, in exile, they're being reminded that I'm going to bring you back. You're going to be able to go home eventually. But you need faith to enlarge that tent. Now, there was another missionary named William Carey. He also lived about the same time as Judson, about 200 years ago. And uh, Carey, he was a shoemaker in England. Actually, we can go to the next slide. There we are. He, uh, I like this little cartoon because he's like working on a shoe and he's looking out the window dreaming. <laughs> and he has a nice world map there in the background. Carey looked at this text, Isaiah 54, and he realized that, that what God is saying here was that it's not enough just to save Israel. God wanted to extend that tent to, to reach the other nations, to reach the people. And he realized that, that he and, and others were being called to become missionaries. But he had a big problem. The church was against it. He, he brought up his idea of sending out missionaries. And they're like, no, 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 that, that, that's not for us. 
You see, at that time, and actually maybe like today, I don't know, you tell me, uh, a lot of people would say, well, there's so much to do here. There's so many needs here. And there are, and people do need to work here. But God is calling some people to go and go far. And another thing that the church said, I hope the church doesn't say that here, is that uh, the missions and the Great Commission was only for the apostles. It's not for us today. And so they rejected him. The church refused to support his plan. Carrie was stuck. He had a problem. Now, just to illustrate, I'd like to show you another body of water that I think is a little bit like uh, what uh, the problem that the church had. Um, it's something maybe you're more familiar with. It's the Dead Sea. And I don't know if you know much about the Dead Sea, but there's a reason the Dead Sea is dead. Now, unlike the Aral Sea, it has a supply of water. It gets water from the Jordan River. It has other supplies of water, but it's dead. Why? The water has nowhere to go out. And so it stagnates and becomes salt, and all the freshwater fish die. You know, us, we need both to have living water flowing in and we need to have our living water flowing out. And that was the problem that the church had that day, that they didn't believe in missions. And so, uh, and, and you know, Kerry was right. God wants to spread his message of salvation all over the world, but he doesn't want to do it just by himself. That's what the church was thinking. That, that he, they said that, well, if God wants to save those people, he'll do it himself. Well, no, God wants to do it, yeah. But he wants to use us. He wants to work through us. Can I have the next slide? Um, each of us have different roles. Um, Carrie said, at first, actually, he wanted to send the missionaries, but then it became clear that he needed to go as a missionary and said, okay, well, I will go down if you hold the rope. Um, another gentleman uh, at that time who became one of the main supporters of, of Carrie, Carrie was a missionary most of his life in India, uh, he said, uh, remembering that time, he said, but before he went down, before Carrie went down, he, it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we would never let go of the rope. And you know, we need both parts, right? We need some people holding that rope, don't let go, and some people going down to share the gospel. And that's really, again, what's being talked about here in this passage. There's the idea of lengthening cords, that we need to be sending out missionaries all over the globe to reach all the people who need to be by Christ. But we also need to strengthen those stakes we need strong sending churches, individuals who will pray for missionaries, who will support missionaries. All of these things need to work together for missions to work and be successful. Now, we have been blessed. We were sent out uh, as missionaries by Millington Baptist. And I know Millington Baptist supports other missionaries. And you, maybe as individuals, might support missionaries. And that's great. Praise God. Keep going. But maybe, maybe there's some people here who need to do more. Maybe you need to start supporting a missionary or start praying for someone. Maybe God might even call you to try out going down on that rope, short-term mission trip, or, or maybe something longer, I don't know. God wants to bring miracles all over the world, and he wants to use us. But each of us need to pray about what role we should play. But you know what? Especially looking at that picture, it's kind of a scary prayer, isn't it? Okay, let's look at the last verse, verse 3. And the third uh, point I'd like to share is that God doesn't just want to do a miracle in us and through us. He has a hope for a worldwide miracle. And that's pictured here in verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. 
Now, the words here, right and left, could also be translated north and south. And if you can imagine the geography of Israel, they tended to extend north and south. And here he's challenging Israel to think about more than that, more than just a physical expansion, but to have a spiritual one where you're influencing the world out from Israel. And there's this idea of the offspring. The offspring will possess the nations, that it's not just a matter of Israel getting their land back. And of course, that's what they wanted, right? They were in exile. It was a matter of Israel with God's people influencing the entire world, influencing the other nations, because Israel's faith was meant to be spread to others, that living water to spread further. Now, we are blessed by your support. And in Ukraine, we try to support Ukrainians to go into missions. And uh, it's probably not very uh, famous, but actually Ukraine is uh, much smaller than America, but is a place that sends out missionaries. They've sent out hundreds of missionaries, maybe at this point even thousands, I'm not sure. Uh, Not all of it is publicized that well. Um, But uh, you can just imagine this. When when communism fell, when the the wall fell, Ukrainians, they decide they want to go into missions. And, And they read the Great Commission, and it says you're supposed to go from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, to Ukrainian, what's the end of the earth? It's not a jungle. It's Siberia, right? It's the far north. And there are people living in these places and never heard the gospel. Uh, Many have even, uh, you know, tribal religions, that kind of thing. And God sent out Ukrainians to all of these places. Um, To give you an idea, uh, one of my favorite places, at least uh, uh, since I I knew a Ukrainian who works there, it's called Yamal. Yamal literally means, in the native language, end of the earth, okay? It is in the far north. I just was on Facebook. My uh, Ukrainian former student, she showed pictures. It snowed yesterday, June 2nd. The kids are happily playing in the snow, you know. Um, to give you an idea, uh, Siberia, average temperature about minus 13 in the winter, uh, coldest minus 88. And in some cities that are really far north, uh, they go to school when it's minus 40. So if you have a tough time getting to school, you know, just remember, maybe it'll help, maybe not, I don't know. Now, what's interesting too is that a lot of these places are physically hard to reach. Uh, when it's summertime, the tundra often becomes like just impassable, and there are these big forests. So a lot of missionaries do their missionary work in winter. Why? Because the rivers are frozen, and they can travel down the rivers like like streets, and that's how they go and reach these different places. Oops. Okay. Sorry. Um, now, as I mentioned, there is a war going on between Russia and Ukraine right now. And because of that, it's very hard for Ukrainians to go into ministry in Russia. A lot of Ukrainians have, have moved there. They've actually taken Russian citizenship and continued their ministry there. Uh, but the good news of that is that a lot of Ukrainians now are looking to do missions elsewhere. There are Ukrainians going to places in Europe, uh, to Africa, Asia. I've, I've even heard of some going to Latin America. And so God is using even, even these tragedies to send out his message further through Ukrainians and, of course, through others around the world. Another interesting part of this verse says, to people the desolate cities. Now, in the original context, what I, what I think the Israelites would have been thinking about is the idea that the, these invaders had taken over their cities and, and God would kick them out so that they could take their cities back. But I think there's a greater spiritual meaning here as well because desolation isn't just a matter of physical desolation. You can be desolate spiritually, right? And so God here has an idea, again, that Israel isn't just supposed to take over their land and be nice and safe, just like we in church can just go to church and be nice and safe here, right? At least in America. Some countries you can't. No, we're to go out. We're to influence the rest of the world. And influencing cities is a very good way to do it. Now, 
Um, I'm a teacher of missions, and recently uh, I was uh, given uh, this idea. Actually, I, I knew some of it already, but um, I talked about four eras of mission. So I'll just uh, briefly go through this uh, to give you an idea of how God has been reaching people uh, throughout the last 200 years or so. Uh, the first era of missions was started by William Carey. I mentioned that shoemaker uh, who had that dream to go out on missions. And his idea was to reach uh, the coastlands. Let me get my pointer up there. So there we go. He went to the coastlands of India. And that was really the only places they could go. It was the place accessible by sea. It was the safest area. In some places, like, for example, China, they wouldn't, the government wouldn't allow you to go to the, to the inner uh, parts of China. And so the first missionaries worked there all over the world, the, the coastlands of Africa and India, etc. The second uh, era of missions was started by Hudson Taylor. And he was a missionary in, in China. And he got permission and had the idea to reach all of China for Christ out to Mongolia. He wanted to send missionaries to reach all of this area. And God blessed him and his mission through it. Then, uh, that was more the 19th century. Then we moved to the 20th century, and there became this new idea. You me, uh, we were talking about the Great Commission earlier, and talking about reaching the nations. And people, in interpreting that world, they realized they weren't really talking about political nations. What they were talking about were people groups, were people that were identified by maybe a separate language or culture. And so many people this last century have talked about reaching all the people groups of the world. And William Townsend, he had the idea that everybody needs a Bible in their own language. And so Wycliffe Bible Translators that he founded had the idea, we want to translate the Bible to every language in the world so everybody can read Scripture in their own language. And that process is still ongoing. There's still a lot of work to do. But that's what we talk about in terms of missions. The idea that was new for me uh, was a fourth era of missions. And this era of missions was started by some gentleman named Ray Bakke and Harvey Kahn. Harvey Kahn was not too far away from here in Westminster Seminary before he passed away. And they said, we need to reach the cities. Now, why are reaching cities important? Well, as you may know, a massive urbanization is happening all over the world today. Uh, They predict by the year 2030, two-thirds of the world will live in cities. And that's happening in some cities here in the U.S. It's happening maybe even in greater amounts in other parts of the world, in in cities in China and India, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, and and also where where I live now, Kiev, Ukraine, a massive urbanization. Uh, Some of that is people just looking for work. Some of that is because of war in the east, people moving to find a new life because they can't can't stay there. But people are moving to cities. Actually, in Ukraine, already just about 70% of the people live in cities. And so if we want to reach the world, we, we need to go where the world is, right? They're moving to cities. But there actually are even more reasons to reach cities. For example, the poorest and the neediest people in the world, and Jesus always had a heart for the poor. Where are they? They're in cities. Yeah, they're in cities. Where are the most influential people in the world? The people who are in governments and business and in education and entertainment? They're in cities. And back to even the previous idea, people groups. There are many unreached people groups that you can't reach where they live because it's illegal to preach the gospel in, in some Muslim countries and places like North Korea, etc. But those people are moving to cities as well to find new opportunities for work, for life, for education. And a lot of times it's a lot easier to reach those people in the cities than where they were from. And so cities all over the world are needed. Uh, we need the gospel. We need missionaries to reach those people. And so at our seminary, since 2014, uh, we've been ministering at a school called the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary. We've started a new program, a program called a master's degree in urban mission, because we realize that we need to figure out how better to minister in cities. It's really different than than villages, for example, right, than small towns. 
Uh, we're inviting experts uh, from the West to teach and, and trying to get some of the more successful pastors in Ukraine uh, to come together and, and to think about. Um, we actually try to say we don't know all the answers. We're trying to create a laboratory you know, where we're doing experiments to try to figure out what are the best ways to reach people, to help people who are in need. And one of the ways that we're doing that, too, is we're translating books. Uh, I'm sure you notice these books up here. Can you read those? Yeah, those are in Russian. <laughs> One of our prog- pro- um, programs or, or, or uh, goals is to translate 10 books, uh, key books, uh, from, from English into Russian. And so uh, two of them we already have, actually partially thanks to you and your church, uh, helped with this project because it is, is costly to do translation publication. Uh, Ray Bach, one of those gentlemen, that's the first book, the yellow one. A theology as big as the city. And uh, the other one, a uh, gentleman who came and taught with us, who used to be at Moody Bible Institute, Dr. John Feuder, uh, has a book about uh, neighborhood mapping. That's in English. And so those have been a great blessing to us because we see ourselves as a seminary not just producing programs for ourselves. We're wanting to publish these books widely so that people that you know, have nothing to do with our seminary, they can at least use these resources for their ministry wherever they're at uh, around uh, the former Soviet Union. And so we appreciate your help in that as well. Uh, now, getting close to wrapping up, I'd like to share something that Ray Bakke likes to say. He says, if you read the Bible... It starts in a garden, but it ends in a city. Uh, the New Jerusalem is where everything ends. Actually, next, there you go. Um, New Jerusalem, the river of life. But in that city are going to be people from every nation, every tribe, every language. That's what we're working towards. We want to reach all of those people to eventually see God create that amazing city. God wants us to be involved in that. But each of us has to think about what role should we play? Um, what is our role in mission? Um, next one there. Now, will we uh, be a part of holding the rope or going down? <laughs> what part would you like? <laughs> William Carey uh, had one other saying that I really like, which I think um, uh, is at least a motivator for me. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Right? That we are to expect that God is going to do a miracle. But we work as hard as we can, hoping that maybe it'll be today that he'll do the miracle. Maybe tomorrow. He'll keep working. So I challenge you to pray and think about what God wants you to do in his mission around the world. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray together, please.